Our God in heaven, we are so thankful to be together. And Father, we are thankful that prayer is such a powerful weapon that we have against evil. And Father, prayer is also one of the greatest gifts you've ever given us, a way to communicate with the creator of the universe. And Father, we're not shy when it comes to offering our requests and our petitions, and even our struggles, Father, before you. Your word tells us that we should always ask. And Father, we are thankful that we have this place where we can come together and collectively and even individually offer up these prayers. Father, knowing each and every prayer is going to be heard. Father, we know many people are going through so many difficult situations right now, and we ask that you hear those prayers, that there's a priority stamp on those prayers. Father, that those who are sick and those who are praying for healing, that they're heard quickly. Father, that you would answer them in the gentleness of your whisper, to speak to their heart, let them know that you have never turned your face from them, and they can be comforted and at peace, even when we don't understand that not one millisecond of our suffering, no matter what it may be, is for naught. Daddy, would you continue to build up this fellowship? So excited by all the things that have actually happened in a positive way this year to our church. and Father, how unified we are and how loving we've become. Father, continue to be with us. Continue to mold us and to shape us and to be in more than we are now. Father, help us to make wise decisions in our ministry and wise decisions amongst one another. Father, would you bless our time tonight? As we dig in through these scriptures, Father, help these scriptures to dig into our hearts. I pray, Father, that again you push me out of the way, that you allow the scripture to speak through, that you would be pleased and the church would be, have benefit through what you have for us today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus we pray, amen. Well, hello, everybody. It is great to be back together. Um, grab your Bibles and let's open them to Numbers chapter tw uh, 20. For some reason, I actually wrote on my notes Numbers chapter 10. Threw me off for a second there. Yeah, Numbers chapter 20 is where, where we are today. And um, I'm excited about this lesson. I know last week we went a little bit long and that was only 13 verses. So we're going to do a little more than that, but I'm going to try to keep it to a shorter uh, timetable. I know we have kids workers we need to take care of, but I do want to recap last week. As you recall, last week we began chapter 20 with um, a very serious thing that happened in Moses' life, a very emotional thing that happened in the life of Moses, and that was the death of his sister Miriam. And uh, the Bible tells us that Miriam died there, and that really marked the end of the old guard. The, the original group of people. If anyone needs a Bible, raise your hand and Tim will grab you one. But it really marks the end of this generation. And remember, Moses was going through a lot of things. He's filling a lot of stuff, as anybody would on the passing of a loved one on that very day. But the people weren't feeling very sorry for him, if you recall. They, uh, they had assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The Bible says they contended with Moses, and they were saying, why have you brought us, and why have you done this? They're basically saying it was your fault, Moses, that we're going through all of this. There wasn't a whole lot of compassion 
for what Moses was going through. And Moses being the incredible leader that he was, he falls on his face when they grumble and he humbles himself out. He just falls on his face before the Lord as he's done many times before. Remember a great example of spiritual leadership. And God answers him and God says, look, I know that the people are thirsty and this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your staff and I want you to strike, I mean speak to the rock and water will gush out abundantly and I, the people shall drink and they shall live. And as we uh, came to know that Moses kind of had a different idea. He started out good. He assembled the people. He grabbed the staff. But instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the people and he calls them a bunch of rebels. He calls out their sin. That wasn't God's idea. In fact, that wasn't God's heart at all. God's heart was grace during this time. And Moses, not only does he misrepresent God's heart, he kind of takes credit and elevates himself up to God's level. And he goes, shall we, like me and you, shall we bring uh, water forth out of this rock? Another mistake. There was certainly anger. There was tiredness. There was exhaustion from all this continuous grumbling. Remember, we're 40 years away from the day they left Egypt. 38 years from where we were in chapter 19. But Moses strikes the rock twice and the biggest thing that he did that was wrong was he ruined this perfect picture of Christ. The first time he struck the rock back in Exodus, it was a sacrificial thing. It was strike the rock and God said, I'll be before the rock. And it was a symbol of what happened with Jesus on the cross. But now fast forward, there's only one sacrifice once and for all. Now it's speak to the rock and Christ who is the living water will gush forth so you may live. And there was this perfect picture, this bookend, so to speak, that God wanted the people to see, and Moses took things in his own hands and profaned that image. And God tells him this in verse 12, because you have not believed me. There's something lacking in his belief right there to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I am going to give them. And so we see this connection between Belief and how essential it is to salvation, but also how crucial it is to treat God as holy. We spent so much time teaching on holiness. So that's where we are. We um, begin, that was up through uh, verse 13, and we begin today in uh, verse 14. And what we're going to do today, we're going to finish off chapter 20. And we're going to get through these verses, and then we're going to take a peek into chapter 21, but only the first nine verses. And as we get into this, we're going to see some things in uh, the end of chapter 20. In verses 14 through 17, we're going to see a brother's plea. We're going to see, you'll see what I mean as we read that. And then we hear this response from uh, verses 18 on into 21. And it's not, it's it's a troubling response. And then we close out this chapter, verses 23 through 29, really with an end of an era. We're going to read about that. And as we dig into chapter 21, we're going to revisit again the importance of belief in salvation. So let's begin together in verse 14. I'm going to read it off my computer. I make the font real big. A brother's plea. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. 
Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians threatened us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and he sent an angel and brought us out from Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Now, I'll stop right here. Right here, we see that Moses, he's, they're right on the border. They're right on the, you know, knock, knock. We're right on the border of your territory. And he sends these messengers, it says, to this king of Edom. And the, the Bible uses this, uh, I think, kind of unusual phrasing when he says, thus your brother Israel has said, and he goes on to say, you know all the hardships like the king of Edom knows all the family business. And notice how he even mentions in verse 15 that our fathers went down to Egypt and that how we stayed in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But then we cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard our prayer and the Lord sent an avenging angel to rescue us. And now behold, we're right on the border. We're on the, in this town, right on the border of you, my brother. Please let us pass through your land, but, and you don't have to worry about us. We're not going to drink from a well. We're not going to get off the road. We're going to stay straight on the king's highway. We're not going to trample your crops or go through a crop or go through your vineyards. We just want to pass through until we pass completely through your territory. Now, the king's highway... And I know the slide isn't great. It's one of the few I could find. But the King's Highway, highway was this famous trade route. And it went basically from north to south. It went from the Gulf of Aquaba all the way north up to Damascus. And if you see the map there, it goes alongside the sea from the bottom, almost in a straight line. The, the red line isn't the King's Highway. It's a black line. It's hard to see. He says, I'm going to stay on that road. So again, Moses is appealing to the king of Edom in verse 14 as brother. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say, your brother? Well, if you remember your Bible, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. These people are descendants of Jacob. These people the Edomites and the Israelites are distant cousins. They're related. They're family. But the Edomites don't trust them. They don't even like them, even though they are family. And it's interesting how prophetic, when we studied Genesis 25, looking back there, we, we read the story of Jacob and Esau's birth. And if you remember, his parents, their parents' name was Isaac, and his wife was Rebekah. And Isaac loved Rebekah, but Rebekah was barren. She couldn't have children. So Isaac intercedes for Rebekah that she would get pregnant, that she'd be able to have children. And it must have been a heck of a prayer because she has twins. She, she's pregnant with twins. But the Bible says that the babies struggle within her womb. And Rebekah is disturbed by this. And she says, if this is so, why them 
Why then am, am I this way? So it says, the Bible says, that she goes to inquire of the Lord. And in verse 23 of Genesis 25, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, remember, Jacob was the younger. And Esau, if you remember, he was kind of a worldly guy. He gave away his birthright for a bowl of stew. He probably wanted the, the physical blessing, but it seems like he didn't want or he didn't care about the spiritual blessing, where Jacob was very focused on this. And this single event... It, it marked the beginning of much deceit and future lies and continuous lies that would plague this family from this day forward. This became an obstacle between these two brothers for most of their lives. Now we read in 18 this troublesome response. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us, or I will come out with a sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway. And if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Now, wait a second. D didn't he just say he wasn't going to drink any water from a well? Uh, is he already adjusting the terms of the agreement here? But it doesn't matter because he goes on to say, Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But it doesn't matter because he said you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him. He, he threatens him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Now it doesn't say it right here but in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 4 and 5 God tells the Israelites don't provoke your brother. It speaks of this account. And God tells him, don't provoke the, your brother Edom. The Edomites were saying no, so what are you going to do? God had already told Moses that he wasn't going to give them any of their land, not even one foot. So God is basically saying, he's telling them to turn around and go around Edom. And Moses right here is learning to trust and obey God. Now, Again, the Edomites refused, but what good did all this showmanship, this threatening, this back and forth talk, did it do any good? No. Especially in the, in the sense that they could have passed and it wouldn't have impacted the Edomites at all. They could have let them slip right through there, but the fact is there were generations of handed down hostility, handed down grudges, lack of forgiveness within this family. The Bible tells us they were afraid. They were afraid of this great horde of people would somehow either uh, attack them or destroy their crops, and they certainly didn't trust him. But what's crazy to me is that these people's great, 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 great grandfathers or whatever, how many greats you throw in there, they were, these were, they were cousins these people are cousins. These great, 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 great grandfathers were brothers. 
of all the problems that we seem to face in life, family disagreements are probably the most painful and the hardest to solve. I, I wonder if maybe God is showing us the decaying nature of sin and how a bitter root can grow up to defile many, even in families. Now, it's also interesting to know that later on, God is going to take vengeance on Edom for their lack of care for their brothers, for this instance and other instance and where, where, where they actually cheer on Jerusalem being sacked by Babylon. And God takes vengeance on them, so get reconciled to your brothers and sisters, right? Your cousins. So we find this plea of a brother, this troublesome response, and then in verse 22, we read about the end of an era. In verse 22, let's read together. Now when they set out from Kadesh, the sons of Israel, the whole congregation came to Mount Hor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. After Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar, Azar, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. When the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. So when you first read this, I think it's just normal to read this and go, man, this is hardcore. Like, this is brutal in a way. Like, it says that they're leaving Kadesh. And the whole Israelite community, they come to Mount Hor and here the Lord speaks to Moses and to Aaron, like at the same time, and they say, Aaron, you're going to be gathered up to your people. What, what does that mean? We read it. it means that Aaron is going to die. And we go, man, that is a bad thing. That's a bad deal. Yet Aaron's death, everyone, marks the end of their wandering as a people and the beginning of their marching. It's an end of an era. But God is not being hardcore here. It's actually very merciful when you think about it. We break it down. You think about the gentleness in which God refers to this event. God's words. Aaron will be gathered to his people. It gives you a vision of what is to come. I mean, it sure beats the whole words like, as soon as we get up to the top of that mountain, Aaron, you're dead. To, a, to believers, death is a gathering. It's, it's a reuniting with loved ones. And in God's mercy right here, he's letting them know that it's time to say goodbye here, but hello up there. And I just can't help myself but to imagine what that hike up that mountain must have been like. You have Aaron, Moses, and Aaron's son. 
And they have time to think about this and talk and maybe say those things that we never got to say to the person knowing that he's going to pass. Maybe confessing things that I wanted to tell you about long before and those hugs and those goodbyes and those special things. But Aaron's son is there knowing all this is going to happen and being a part of this conversation, being able to say those last words to a brother. It's powerful. And the sad part for me isn't that Aaron's going to be gathered to his people, but that Aaron too must pay the penalty for the incident that happened earlier in chapter 20 when Moses struck the rock. The people are about to enter the promised land and just like Moses, Aaron will not be seeing the promised land. He's not permitted to enter. So in verse 28, it says that Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and they put them on Eleazar, his son. I I love this picture that God gave this special warning about Aaron's death so that there could be a smooth transition in the passing down of the position of the high priest to Aaron's oldest son, Eliezer. The man dies, but the priesthood, which represents access to God, which represents relationship to God, that carries on. No one's relationship with God in Israel was to depend on Aaron, but on the high priest, whomever it would be. God is ensured that there will always be a high priest for us to come. And that is Jesus. In Hebrews 4, we read these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is it? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. About relationship. We need not depend on a man for our relationship with God. We have a high priest who stands in that gap and has opened up the doors that we can approach with confidence the throne room of God. So now Aaron is gone and his son is taking his, play, his place and he's got the priestly garments on and in verse 29 it says, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. And I Aaron's death death marks the end of an era and it says that they wept for 30 days. The same thing happens when Moses dies and we'll read that soon. And when other men in the Bible die, there's this mourning of 30 days. Now I think it's hard for us in modern day America to imagine a month of mourning as a nation. I think maybe the last two times I can even think about that may have happened was JFK's assassination where clearly the whole country was mourning. I wasn't. I was a little baby. And 9-11. 
9-11 stands out where a whole nation mourned the death of innocent people. But there are stages that people go through in grief. There are the classic stages. We, we go through shock and denial, pain and guilt, anger, bargaining, depression. And then we start at that upward turn where we start working through some things and ultimately get to acceptance and hope. That 30 days is what they do. They, they work through their grief. I wonder if we've lost that in our nation. I think the truth is we think a three-hour funeral is too long. Most funerals are way shorter. And certainly the, the loved ones, the immediate family, they, they mourn much longer than 30 days. Sometimes years. But friends and those who knew them we're off to a new place right away, hours later. It's interesting that in Judaism, based on these scriptures, these incidents of 30 days of mourning, they've actually adopted this practice into their culture. Even today, you can, I, I encourage you to go look that up. It's very, very interesting. But it shows the importance of Aaron and the closeness that he had to the people. So now we get into chapter 21. And I love this section. In verse 1, it says, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atherium, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah, which that name means destruction. So there's this king, Aaron, and he lives in the Negev and he hears what his spies or rumor or whatever it is, scouts that Israel's coming and the direction they're coming from. And then it just says, he fights against Israel, and he, I guess they weren't quite ready. Remember, this is the first generation that's really had to do any fighting. And they weren't prepared. And this king comes and he takes some of them captive. So Israel, they do the right thing. Now they're starting to follow God. They too now fall on their face, and they, they make a vow to the Lord. They don't fall on their face. It doesn't say that, but I imagine they... They make a vow, they're praying, God, please help us. If you will indeed deliver this people into our hands, then we'll utterly destroy them. Now, this utterly destroy phrase means to totally devote something to the Lord. Meaning like you're going to destroy it, but you're not keeping anything for yourself. Everything is for you, God. This is a change for the people. They want to follow God. And the Lord hears their voice of Israel. And it says he delivers up the Canaanites. And then they followed through. They utterly destroyed them and their cities. They kept nothing for themselves. And the place is called destruction. They're starting to trust God. They want to trust God. They have their first victory with this generation. But then verse 4 happens. <laughs> Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around 
the land of Edom. Stop right there. I want to show you this map. The white is, there, is the Exodus route. And you see in the middle there where they loop up to Mount Hor. And then all this happens and God says you need to go around. And then they have to come back down and then circle around to go back up. It says that the people became impatient because of the journey. Who wouldn't? Have you ever had to backtrack? I hate backtracking. I hate that one step forward, two steps backward. It had to be so frustrating. And now they fall back into their old habit. The people spoke against God and Moses. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? The same things. For there is no food and no water. But now they cross a line. And we loathe this miserable food. Whoa. Like I don't see Moses falling on his face here. I think Moses has learned I need to stay out of it. Let the vengeance be the Lord's. And in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. That's a picture of repentance. Yes, they sinned against Moses, but most importantly, they realized they've sinned against the Lord. Intercede with the Lord that we may remove the serpents from us. And Moses, like always, he intercedes for the people. He forgave them. He was a first intercessor. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, which means a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, so let's talk about this. This is just when you thought you've heard it all, right? This is kind of a crazy story right here. The people sin, and it says that God punishes them by sending these fiery serpents. Now, this adjective fiery probably refers to what it felt like if you got bit by one of them. And the people, they come to Moses this time, and they say, we have sinned. We have sinned against the Lord, and we've sinned against you, Moses. We have spoken against the Lord. And it is a great picture of repentance that we're seeing their hearts changing and, and wanting to do the right next thing. Please intercede for us with the Lord. Take the serpents away. And Moses does. He falls on his face like again like he always did and he prays for them. Now God's response is very interesting. Like when they came to Edom and God had told them, I don't want you going into this land. You go around and you'll see that Edom is basically that red box and there's different maps showing Edom being in basically the same area, varies a little bit. But when God tells them, now you need to go around, do you think they understood this? No, they were frustrated. They lashed out. But right here, 
God does an interesting thing when they pray to him. Notice, first of all, he doesn't take away the serpents. Did you notice that? God instead tells Moses to do something that they would have never thought of. Just like going around. I wouldn't... Does it make sense? But God says to make this serpent out of bronze and to set it on a pole so that the people may look at it if they get bit and live. <laughs> you know, like what? Like that sounds like something I would have made up or something, you know, <laughs> like, like some kid's story. So what's going on here? Let, let me ask you this question. Do you think there is anything special about the bronze serpent itself? No. I mean, really, isn't it just another type of idol? Careful. We, we don't want to say, well, yeah, because God told them to make it. But it is. It's just another idol. In fact, in 2 Kings, there is a passage describing the reforms made by King Hezekiah in which King Hezekiah has the altars torn down he cuts down the symbols of Asherah and it says that he destroys the serpent made by Moses. It says he did it right. He says he did it right in the sight of the Lord. That it was a good thing. He did it right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nahash then. Isn't that interesting? This thing that saved their life became an idol later on. And they would burn incense to this thing. And King Hezekiah said, we're not having no more of this idol business. And it says that he did right in the sight of the Lord. God was pleased. It was never about the serpent. The serpent had just become another idol. So what is God showing us here? This is a test of faith, church. The people were told that if they were bitten that they should look up, look upon this serpent and, and look at it, it's on this pole. And when you do that, no more pain, no more death, that you would be healed. But the key was that in order to be healed, you had to believe it. This is an exercise in faith. God is preparing his people to go into the promised land, but they would need to walk by faith and understand salvation by faith. That this picture of this bronze serpent is so, so similar to what we are called to do, how we are to look upon Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In fact, Jesus himself even refers to this principle in John chapter 3. Jesus speaking, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal death. What the people of Israel were being told to do was to believe in the promises of God. And true belief, church, always has an action component to it, obedience. There are stories in the Bible, there's full of them, Naaman, the commander of the guard, he has leprosy. And Elisha, the prophet, says, you can be cured of the leprosy, but I need you to go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan. Now what if he only dunked himself five times? Would he have been healed? I don't think so. It was, believe it, act on it. There was a blind man and Jesus heals him and he spits on the ground and he makes this spittle of mud and he puts it on his eyes and he says, now go wash it off in the pool of Shiloh or whatever, I can't remember the name, Shiloh, Silo? He goes there. Now what if he wouldn't have washed it off there? Do you think he would have got his sight back? I don't think so. Belief always has an action component to it. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. Whoever looks upon him and believes is saved. It produces a change in you. It's not just some words. It's, there's an action. People can see the difference. God is showing us that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Amen? I'm going to invite Doug back up. We're going to close out here in just a minute, but we can see that God is preparing the people to enter into the promised land through faith. And God is always, church, like you may be thinking, well, my faith isn't much. But I'm committed. The Bible tells us that God is always searching the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He'll strengthen you. He'll get you through. But I only have a tiny bit of it. God's looking for you. You're committed. You're trying. But Pastor Tom, I'm just hanging on by a fingernail. At least you're hanging on. Hanging on means you haven't given up. He will strengthen you through your faith. But oftentimes that strengthening comes through testing. And that's what we don't always understand. What we are witnessing in this section of Scripture is the people, they end their wandering and they begin their following. They're now ready to walk by faith. They're now ready to do all the things that God had promised. All the things that God had planned. Remember I told you before, you can do it the hard way or you can do it the easy way. But either way, God's plan will be done in our lives. We're going to stop here. My time is up. And let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are so thankful 
Father, for your word. And so thankful for the message. Father, how it pricks our hearts and how it teaches us so much about ourselves. Father, I'm grateful that we're studying the Old Testament so we never feel disconnected. Nor should we ever feel like if I was them, I would never do that because we repeat the same mistakes nearly every day. Father, thank you that these stories are in the Bible, that we can learn from them and we can grow from them and we can cherish them and we can teach them to our children. And Father, in hopes that we will not make the same mistakes again, but we are a stiff-necked people. Father, help us like them to truly begin to seek you to walk by faith, not by sight. Father, when we're confused about the direction we should go and we're backtracking again and going around, that this is part of your plan, that there's something we missed the first time. Father, help us when it seems crazy to do something you are telling us to do, maybe to move or maybe to switch jobs a relationship that shouldn't continue or a relationship that should and it seems crazy to us to believe and to obey make us sensitive to your leading to your voice and may the word always always speak to us in the most powerful and obvious way we love you and Jesus I pray amen